0: A great vastness of vision flows from the Buddha's enlightenment. We spoke of beings wandering over countless lifetimes through many different planes of existence. The lower realms, the higher realms, the human realm. He talked of innumerable world systems, each one containing these different planes of existence. He spoke of unimaginable immensities of time. He spoke of countless eons, and an eon being that amount of time that it would take a bird that carried a silk scarf in its beak, flying over the top of a mountain, the time it would take to, for that mound to erode away by that bird flying over once every hundred years. <laughs> That's an eon. <laughs> and we've been wandering through this samsaric realm for countless eons. But at the heart of all of this, at the heart of this immensity of vision, which is really hard to comprehend, the heart of it all lies the possibility of awakening, the possibility of liberation. Probably not too many of us have actually traveled through all these different realms, although it's said it's possible. But there is a way for us to understand the immensity of the Dharma journey in terms of looking into the nature of our own minds. Exploring the nature of consciousness. It's opening to the mystery of consciousness. What is it? An opening to what the Buddha called the deathless, that which is beyond birth and death. All of that is right here, right within our own experience. What is consciousness? It's that knowing faculty of mind but knowing not in the sense of acquired knowledge which is how we often use that word in English. It's not the knowing of knowledge but rather the direct, immediate, intimate cognizing of the object. Knowing a sight, knowing a sound, knowing a smell, knowing a thought as a thought. It's not confusing the thought for the sound. We don't hear bird. We hear a sound and then think bird. And so consciousness is just that which knows. It knows the sound, it knows the sight, it knows the thought. Now moments of consciousness, as you've become very well aware Are often clouded by delusion. That mental factor which is not, which clouds the consciousness, it clouds the mind so that we don't see clearly, we don't see accurately what it is that's going on. And when delusion is present, the mind is often, your experience is characterized very often by attachment, fixation, contraction, aversion, resistance, all those ways that cause suffering. But sometimes we have moments of consciousness which are free of delusion, free of attachment, free of clinging, and I call this wisdom mind awareness. Awareness being consciousness Plus wisdom, the wisdom mind. We're pretty familiar with the consciousness clouded by ignorance. We have a lot of those moments. It's when we're caught up in wanting, caught up in attachment, in fear, in aversion and we're lost in our thoughts, we're lost in the past, we're lost in future, we're lost in our fantasies. Buddha used many different words to describe these various states of delusion. Hindrances, floods, defilements, taints, bonds, fetters. You got the picture? <laughs> The words are instructive because they really point out the contraction of mind when we're caught up in these. In each of these deluded states, in each of these contracted states, we're actually suffering. It's not just that delusion's there or ignorance is there. It's we're suffering in those states, although often we're not aware enough to see that. In one sutta, the Buddha used some <clears throat> metaphors to describe the hindrances, <clears throat> to describe the actual experience of being lost in a hindrance. He said, When we're lost in a hindrance, a fetter, a bond, lost in delusion, it's like a person being in, de- in debt or having a disease or being in prison, or enslaved, or wandering in a desert. So those are pretty strong images you know, that the Buddha is using to describe the quality of our experience, the quality of mind, in delusion, in ignorance. It's like being in prison, enslaved, diseased. So we want to recognize that, we want to recognize and learn to recognize those moments. But although delusion is a very strong habit, and comes up a lot for all of us, the good news is that it's not intrinsic to the mind itself. It's not that delusion is somehow innate to consciousness, All the defilements of mind, of visitors, they come when the conditions are present, when the conditions change, they disappear. They may come very frequently, but there are also very many moments when the mind is free of delusion. It's very helpful and important to recognize those moments that are free of ignorance, free of delusion. Because the more clearly we can recognize the wisdom mind, the more intimately and directly we know it in ourselves, the more easily we can access it. So it's important not to overlook all of those moments when the mind is free of delusion, when we're in awareness and mindfulness when the wisdom is present. There are many different descriptions of the awakened mind you know, in the different traditions. Many different words are used to describe it, but all the, all the traditions converge in one understanding of what liberates the mind. So about this, there is no disagreement at all. And the Buddha expressed it very directly and unequivocally. He said, this is the deathless, namely liberation through non-clinging. This is the deathless, namely liberation through non-clinging. In another sutta he said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. And whoever has heard this has heard all the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. And whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. Given that it's all the teachings, I'll repeat it. (laughs) <laughs> Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Centuries later, you know, as Buddhism developed and spread throughout India, one of the great uh, Indian adepts, Talopa, was giving instruction to his disciple Naropa who himself was the teacher of Marpa, Milarepa, and so the whole lineage in Tibetan Buddhism, he said, Talopa to Naropa, he said, you are not fettered by appearances, by experience. You are fettered by attachment. So cut your attachment. It's the same message. Liberation through non-clinging. What's so important for us to understand and so difficult to realize deeply is that non-clinging is not some state you know that we imagine might happen in a far-off future non-clinging is our practice now this is our practice moment to moment and all the techniques that we use and all the methods and all the teachings, and all the different metaphysical systems now expressed in the Dharma, all of that serve this end. They all serve the end, no matter what practice we're doing. Whatever method we're using serves the end of non-clinging. As you've noticed very deeply, all of you, our unfolding experience keeps changing. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant, sometimes it's neutral. Our unfolding experience keeps changing, moment after moment, and yet our practice remains the same, non-clinging. We're not practicing in order to have some better experience. And this is so hard to internalize because we keep wanting okay, I'll be with this breath in order to really have a good next breath you know, or to reach some state of tremendous calm or ease or peace or whatever we are not practicing in order to have some better experience. However nice or however wonderful it may be, we're practicing what the Buddha called the heart's release. Freedom is in the non-grasping mind. That's where freedom is to be found. It's not to be found in yet another experience. liberation through non-clinging. That's what we're practicing. But in case we still don't get it, you know, and we've all heard this so many times, the Buddha went on to point out to us those areas where we do cling, so that at least we can focus our attention you know, in those arenas where clinging is so habitual. So at least we know where we're working. The first big arena of clinging is one that's been spoken about a lot and we're very familiar with. It's the clinging of the wanting mind, clinging to different kinds of sense pleasures, to the pleasure of sense objects. We're just this this a little internal quiz. Coming into the hall, would you rather have pleasant sensations or unpleasant ones? <laughs> the Buddha made one, I mean, of course, all of, all of his statements are so remarkable, but this one really kind of captured my attention. He, saw, he said that as long as there's clinging to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. We probably have a little work to do. <laughs> because even though we can know it intellectually, you know, when we really look at our experience and look about how we relate to pleasant and to unpleasant, we see, either on very obvious levels or quite subtle levels, we like the pleasant, we cling to the pleasant, whether it's pleasant physical sensations, you know, pleasant tastes, pleasant thoughts, pleasant sounds. Now how often do we just get lost in our meditation, lost in pleasant reverie? You know, we're just kind of in this very nice, dreamlike state. And it's nice, the hour goes quickly, the body doesn't hurt. But we're asleep. We're not aware, we're in delusion, because of clinging. Because we get lost in it. At one point, I was so lost. I was just. There was one period. I was just thinking, 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 and I couldn't. I just couldn't extricate myself from it. So finally, I just. It's like I think there was. It was really disgust, but we'll call it wise effort. <laughs> I said. Joseph, do you want to think or do you want to get enlightened? <laughs> you know, I just had to give myself a talking to, to. Okay, stop, enough. This isn't leading anyplace. I was just indulging the pleasure of it out of this very strong habit. At another, at another point, and it's amazing, this is really embarrassing. <laughs> just the power you know, of desire, the power of wanting pleasant things. This was back in my days in India when I was practicing, you know, practicing intensively. My practice was in wonderful place, just you know, mind clear and mindful and deeply concentrated and the kind of sitting any moment you're gonna get enlightened. You know? And then the tea bell rang. And in India they served like a little cup of tea and a banana about that big. (laughs) You know. And my mind just Banana, banana, I need my banana! (laughs) It was just amazing and I got up for the tea and the banana. The power of the wanting mind. When we investigate our attachment to pleasant sense experience, it really reveals the very strong compelling force of addiction, you know, of fascination, of enchantment. We just we just get lost in the wanting. We can become so focused on what it is we want that we forget. To really see that really what we're after is the pleasant feeling or the anticipated pleasant feeling associated with the object. It wasn't really the banana that I wanted, but in my mind, although this was not conscious at the time, but it was really you know, a taste, just that sense of a few moments of pleasant feeling. That's really what the mind was after. But if we don't see that clearly, if we don't see that it's the pleasant feeling we're after, and we focus just on the object of our wanting, we're under the delusion that, I need the object, I have to have the object. When we remember, when we can reflect, it's not the object, it's not the banana. It's just the pleasant feeling, then it becomes much easier to reflect on the fleeting nature of that feeling. I mean, how long does the pleasantness of the two-inch banana last? (laughs) I mean, to sacrifice enlightenment (laughs) for that. The Buddha spoke so directly to this. And really, if we want, if we want to be practicing For liberation. I mean this is just so such a clear instruction. He said whatever feelings arise whether pleasant or unpleasant or neutral abide contemplating impermanence in these feelings. Contemplate the fading away, the relinquishment, the letting go of those feelings. Contemplating thus one does not cling to anything in the world. When not clinging there is no agitation. That's an interesting remark. When there's no clinging, there is no agitation. When not agitated, one personally attains nibbana. And so we need to remember, in times of clinging to sense objects, sense pleasures, that it's really about wanting the hit of pleasant feeling. That's what we're after. And if we can remember to contemplate, abide, contemplate, that feeling is just momentary. It helps to release the grip of grasping. This doesn't mean that we don't act in the world, and it doesn't mean that we don't open to the range of pleasant feelings in our lives. We can be totally open to the whole range of feelings that come. But can we be with them without the clinging, wanting, grasping mind? In addition to this deep habit of clinging to pleasant sense experience, a much more subtle form of grasping is that clinging to pleasant meditative experience. This is much more subtle and much more seductive. You know, there are times in practice when the experience is wonderful. It's like the whole mind and body can be filled with calm and peace and light and joy and rapture and really a happiness that we don't experience in our ordinary lives. A really overwhelming kind of joy. It takes a lot of wisdom, a lot of understanding to remember at those times that these two are just passing states. Liberation through non-clinging. And it's interesting that all of these states, we could call them the factors of enlightenment, at certain stages in practice are called corruptions of insight. Why? It's not because suddenly they become unwholesome. It's because at those particular stages the mind is prone to grasp at them. And so they actually are corruptions of insight. And we need to see that. We need to see the grasping to let go. In the Dzogchen practice, in the Tibetan, some of the Tibetan practices, the same point is made. They talk about not confusing. Sort of freedom or the nature, the empty nature of mind with the bliss, clarity and non-thought. And that's the same thing it's the same teaching. That we can have great states of bliss, of clarity of non-thought, of stillness but they too are just meditative states that's not where the liberation is, that's not where the freedom is The freedom is in non-clinging. Sometimes there's a compelling fascination, not just with the meditative state itself, but with the whole unfolding process. You know, it gets really interesting when the mind is concentrated and mindful and we're just really there with what's happening. It's very easy to get into that space where we're with our experience, but with an in-order-to mind. You know, so we're kind of leaning in to the unfolding, anticipating what's happening. At one point when my mind was just so interested in the kind of investigation of the most subtle things I had been experiencing, Upandita told me, you're too attached to subtlety. You know, and it was a great great help to me, because I was leaning into things. At that point, I was not practicing non-clinging. I was clinging to seeing, okay, how minutely can I observe? And really, we can, can understand the practice as a dropping back from that grasping, dropping back from the clinging, and allowing... The subtlety of awareness simply to happen by itself as it happens and sometimes it's that way and sometimes we see on a grosser level but in both cases we can be in the freedom of non grasping we need to disengage the gears of attachment it's like depressing the clutch of our mind you know so that everything is still going but the gears of attachment are not engaged. I'd like to offer you one mantra which can enlighten you. So all you have to do is do it. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. So what does that mean? It means you don't have to wait for some other experience not to cling to. You cannot cling now. (laughs) Because it doesn't matter to what you don't cling. Liberation is in the non-grasping. does this seem clear <laughs> this is our practice our practice is with whatever arises at any of the six sense doors mine included whatever arises it's pleasant it's unpleasant it's neutral it's subtle it's gross it's this or that we can practice the mind of non-grasping, of settling back, not holding on, non-clinging. That's where the freedom is, and it's possible in any moment. But we're so conditioned to think, oh, I have to, I have to wait for some other experience to happen before I can let go. Why wait? The non-clinging doesn't mean we close off to sensations or to thoughts or to feelings. We can be totally open, totally receptive, and simply not hold on. And that's the great ease that can come for us in practice. Okay, attachment to sense, the pleasure of sense objects, attachment to meditative states, to pleasant meditative states. That's the first area of clinging the Buddha was pointing out to us. The second big area of attachment or grasping, which we get caught in again and again, is attachment to views and opinions. We have so many views and opinions about things even about things we know nothing about, we still (laughs) have opinions. Not only that, we get very attached to being right. We we get so caught in our own point of view. I don't know that I mentioned uh, this before, but I really love the title of David Brinkley's book. It came out some years ago. Everyone is entitled to my opinion. (laughs) <laughs> because that's really how we go through life <laughs> we don't always admit it but it's our basic stance so first it's instructive to really see the difference between things we, we might really know and things which we really don't know but just have an opinion about But it's also wise to keep an open mind about things, even though we know, even though we have direct experience of. It's very easy to develop pride about knowledge or spiritual pride about insights, even genuine insights that we've had. And when we get attached to them, when we cling to them, I'm really selfless. (laughs) I understand selflessness, for example. It's just to see how our minds will grasp or identify with or cling to almost anything. It will even co-opt genuine spiritual meditative insights. We become attached to that. And the more attached we are to views and opinions, it just sows the seeds of conflict, of sectarianism. You know, this is right, all else is wrong. And the Buddha talked a lot, and especially there's, there are sections in the Suttanipata, which is a collection of short verses which is said to be the oldest of the teachings you know, in the Pali Canon, there are many verses where he talks of the unskillfulness of exalting one's own view and disparaging others. All the different teachings, all the different views, even all the different insights, really are skillful means to help us let go of clinging. If we take them to be statements of absolute truth, as often happens in the world, these teachings are what is true, and everything else is somehow lesser. You know, wars have been fought over this. People have killed each other over that. we have to see in our own minds, our own tendency to become attached to a view, attached to an opinion. When we see it all as skillful means for letting go of grasping, then we can learn from so many different sides. That Those teachings can be expressed in so many different ways, in so many different languages, in so many different metaphors. When we're not attached to any one particular way of expression, we can learn from all of them. And we see them all as skillful means for what? For letting go of clinging. Now it actually becomes possible to learn from one another, rather to stay behind our defensive walls of attachment to view. 16th century, I think it was 16th or 17th century Zen Master Bankai he had a wonderful line he said, which just captures this teaching he said, don't side with yourself and how much of our lives do we go through our lives on on all levels, in our relationships, in our work in our meditation how much of the time are we proceeding, siding with ourself. Well, think of what a relief it would be just to let go of that attachment, let go of that clinging, really resting in a state of openness. So there's the arena of clinging to the pleasantness of sense objects, the pleasant or pleasure of meditative experiences. This is where we get caught. We get caught in the arena of attachment and clinging to views and opinions, whether worldly ones or spiritual ones. The deepest attachment we have, the deepest (coughs) clinging we have, is the attachment to the idea, the concept of self. This goes very deep in all of us, the conditioning, the habit the holding on to the notion of self, of I. And the great beauty of a retreat like this and the gift of the practice is that we can really explore and open to the illusory nature, to the conceptual nature of self. Self is a concept, and it's at times useful, So it's not that we have to get rid of the concept. We simply have to see that it is just a concept. Self is a designation we give to a certain appearance of things. It has no... The self does not refer to anything that has an independent self-existence, an independent reality. Of course, there are many... Many examples or images for this. We go to the movies, get totally caught up in the story. It's a love story, it's a thriller, it's a horror movie, whatever. And we get totally caught up in the story, and we have all of these feelings and emotions relating to the characters on the screen. Is anybody really up there? It's not that there's. It's not that there's anybody on the screen. It's just. It's just a picture. And then we could even look further and kind of look up in the theater and see the beam of light going through the film. Even the sense of the person or the people or the action. Is not really happening. It's really just colored light. Nothing is going on whatsoever. And yet we're sitting there, (laughs) what's going to (laughs) happen? This is our life. This is how we live because we haven't seen through to this more ultimate nature. I'll talk more in in a later talk about this. We're we're so caught in the illusion of self, of I. But even when we do begin to get some glimpses through our meditation practice, that there's no one really here. It's just this flow of empty phenomena flowing on. You know, it's a mosaic, it's a constellation of thoughts and feelings and images and sensations and, and it's all put together. You know, and there's an appearance of a being, an appearance of someone. So sometimes, you know, through our practice, we do get a sense. Yes, yeah, self is just an idea, a concept which we're overlaying on this flow of changing phenomena. But even when we get that beginning understanding, still deep down, there's a felt sense of I, isn't there? I mean, we can hear about selflessness and even begin to understand it on some level, but it feels like there's a self. Well, what is that about? Where does that felt sense come from? When we look carefully, when we really investigate our experience, we see that the felt sense of I, even when we're... Somewhat free of the conceptual sense of it, the felt sense comes in all of those moments when we are identifying with various aspects of our experience. Experience, moments of experience are arising. It's that process of identification with it that, that brings about that felt sense. You know, we identify with the body. It's often the first response to the question, Who am I? Well, I'm this. this. This is me. But when we look more carefully, we see the body is not something that we can actually call I or me or mine. And just think of changes from a young baby to a child to a, you know, an adolescent, a young adult, an older person, very old person, dead person. Which one, which which phase of the body is I itself? There's nothing there that's stable, it's always changing. I don't know that you've ever seen or read seen pictures or seen in person autopsies. You know, kinda of cut the body open and okay, there's you know, all these organs, the lungs, the liver, the stomach, the intestines. Oh yeah, the liver is me. Yeah, you know, we probably wouldn't identify very much with the liver or the lower intestines. <laughs> but it's all wrapped up nicely in skin. It's all nicely packaged. Yep, that's me. It's because we're not seeing deeply. We're not seeing really what's there. We're seeing superficially. And so we get caught in that attachment, that identification. or even on a microscopic level you know, or a cellular, or atomic level. As I've read, it's mostly empty space. I read someplace that if all the matter in the body, you know, if, if all the space between atoms and you know, that level, if all the space were removed, the amount of matter that would be left would be the size of a particle of dust. Yes, this is what we identify with. (laughs) This is me, this is self. It really doesn't make sense. But until in some way we see through just the surface appearance, we get caught in this. And so there is this very strong felt sense. Yes, I'm the body. So a lot of the teaching, a lot of our practice is just to go beyond the surface impression. You you may have had the experience in your sitting, at times when the concentration deepens and the mindfulness is strong, there are times when the whole sense of the solidity of the body really disappears. The form of the body disappears, it's just kind of a changing energy field. There's nothing solid there at all. And so then we begin to get a very intuitive understanding of the selflessness of the body. We're less inclined to identify with it. We also create a felt sense of self when we're identified with our thoughts. You know, I'm planning, I'm judging, I'm remembering, I'm whatever. We identify with the stories we make up. Stories we make up about ourselves, stories we make up about other people. Just how many stories have you made up about other yogis You know, on the retreat? You may not have even spoken to them, you know, but the mind can create whole scenarios about people. Or maybe, you know, you're standing on line for lunch. Do you ever have kind of those quick little flitting judgments you know, about everybody in front of you, especially if they're moving too slowly? And it's just our mind gets caught in these thoughts. We identify with them. And that creates the felt sense of self. Particularly now, at this time of the retreat, really pay attention to thoughts of past and future, you know, particularly future, it is so freeing to see that every thought of past and future and that whole world which we create as we inhabit those thoughts and all the feelings we have generated by those thoughts It's all just a thought in the moment. What am I going to do when the retreat is over? Hmm, I'm going to see this person or do that project. Just a thought, that's all it is. Ah, another month, just a thought. Only another month, just a thought. It's amazing how we create these mind worlds and then inhabit them. And that's our lives. It is tremendously liberating to really see them for what they are. It's just a thought. Light, substantial, no problem. The only power that thoughts have is the power that we give them. And what's so amazing, we've talked about this before. When thoughts are unnoticed, they have tremendous power in our lives. And when they are noticed, we see that they're nothing. They're just these insubstantial little energy blips I'd like to read something from Kensi rinpoche who was one of the great tibetan masters of the last century he said normally we operate under the deluded assumption that everything has some sort of true and substantial reality but when we look more carefully we find that the phenomenal world is like a rainbow vivid and colorful but without any tangible existence. Thoughts have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly as they've been doing throughout countless past lives. It is an amazing phenomena, thoughts. Something that has no intrinsic reality at all and we give it so much power. The beauty of our training here, and this endless opportunity, you know, to observe this and to see through them, where we just sit, and we pay attention to the arising of thought. Chin, Chinul, who was a great Korean Zen master you know, from tenth eleventh century, he said, "Don't be afraid of your thoughts." Only take care lest your awareness of them is tardy. That's all. The thoughts themselves are not the problem. We simply need to, oh yeah, just a thought. It's very helpful to remember, to delight in the rec- in the moment of recognition that we're thinking, rather than to get caught in a self-judgment about the fact that we were lost, that we were lost. So thoughts come, and if we're lost in them, at a certain point, we become aware. In that moment of awareness, don't just hop back to the breath. Take that moment and recognize the light in the quality of wakefulness. In that moment, we have a chance to see and to deeply understand, oh, just a thought, it's empty. And the more we do that, we are less enslaved liberation through non-clinging So we create a felt sense of self when we identify with the body, when we identify with thoughts, we create a strong felt sense of self when we identify with various emotions. You now I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm afraid. Then we go even further, I'm an angry person, I'm a happy person, I'm a fearful person. We built a whole superstructure of self on top of momentary changing conditions. Is it possible to be with an emotion in the same way, the same open, receptive way that you're with a sound? Now you're sitting and you hear a sound. Generally, it's no problem. You know, it's pleasant, it's unpleasant. We have a pretty easy ability just to be there and be totally open and let the sound come and go. Can we practice being with emotion in exactly that way? It's difficult because we're in the habit of strongly personalizing the emotion, of taking, yes, this is really me. Even when I see bodily sensations are coming going, thoughts are coming going, but I'm really angry. You know, and we create that strong, felt sense of I in that identification with emotion. One way of learning to not take them so personally and And I talked a lot last time about working with afflictive emotions. One piece of that, which would be very helpful to explore, is to really see their contingent nature. They're arising out of conditions. They're not who we are. As an example of this, and this happens a lot, notice how often we'll be going along, sitting or walking, We'll have a certain thought or image and if the thought or image is unnoticed about something in the past, anticipating something in the future, that unnoticed thought or image can in a moment trigger a flood of emotion. One time I was walking around the loop and a thought came to mind. There was something coming up that I had, uh, forget exactly what it was, but I, there was some anxiety about it what was going to come. So I had, this, I had this thought and just in the moment my body was flooded with this strong, intense feeling of anxiety. And I was, I was pretty mindful. I was just watching it. And it was so surprising to me, this thought which came out of nowhere and which was in itself nothing had the power to flood my body with this emotion. So I watched it and then the emotion... I washed through, and I was so fascinated by it. I purposely thought it again because I just wanted to see, and ch- it was amazing. I thought it again and the same, <laughs> and it was just so interesting to watch this relationship of thought and emotion, and it was so impersonal. So we can we can explore this and begin to see that emotions don't belong to us. They arise out of conditions, and we can be open to them, let them wash through, just as with every other experience. Also notice how the emotions we feel are conditioned by our level of understanding. Because what may make one people very unhappy might leave another person completely at ease. And a very good example of this, of course, is just watching children. You know, when you watch a child, they can run through a series of emotions so quickly. You know, they're happy and they say it and they're angry and they... And from the adult perspective, they're probably quite calm and open and easy about it all because there's a bigger context of understanding. Well, can we bring sort of the mature wisdom mind to bear on the experience of our various emotions. We're not closing off to them, we're just with them, but we're letting them wash through. We're not getting so caught or so identified with them. The most subtle place of attachment, of identification, Where the sense of self is so intimately and deeply rooted, very difficult, takes a long time of seeing and, and awareness comes from our identification with consciousness itself. You know, even when we begin to see the, the sensations and thoughts and even the emotions as arising and passing out of conditions, we still get very caught in the identification, I'm the one knowing, I'm the knower, I'm the observer, I'm the witness of it all. So it's like the last bastion of self, of I Something I've mentioned, which I found very helpful in beginning to decondition that, and it's just, it's a little technique, which somehow has really helped free the mind from that way of understanding things, is by framing the experience in the passive voice. I think I mentioned this early in the first part. For example, sound being known a thought being known a sensation being known rather than i'm knowing a sound i'm knowing a thought when we put it in the passive voice and i i first was playing with this in the walking meditation i was just walking and feeling the sensations just just the flow of sensations no image of foot or leg just a flow of sensations being known And when it's framed in that way, we take the I out of it. There's no I, there's no self, it's just things being known. And then the very interesting question, known by what? And that question really points us very directly to an exploration of the nature of mind, the nature of consciousness. In the walking, just the sensations are being known. Spontaneously, nobody's doing anything. There's no effort whatsoever required. It's just being present. It's being undistracted. The sensations are being known, spontaneously. Known by what? This is the great mystery. In some traditions, it's called the union of emptiness and cognizance. Buddhadasa, who was a great Thai monk from the last century, he said we should really call mind emptiness, but because of the knowing faculty, we call it mind. So there's this amazing mystery that's unfolding, the mystery of awareness, the mystery of things being known. There's nothing to find And yet the cognizing function, the knowing faculty, is happening. And there's no one doing anything. So you have a month just to play in that understanding, in that exploration. we begin to get the sense, we really begin to experience consciousness, awareness, itself as being selfless. Not I, not mine. Just things being known. Known by what? Emptiness. I mean the words really, really become very limited. We need to just be in the experience of it, and it's totally accessible in every moment. This is not something we wait for. It's happening in every moment, and we simply need to pay attention. So we can watch for the contractions of self many times through the day. You know, watch when we get caught by something in the body. Watch when we get lost, identified with a thought, lost in emotions. We get lost in the sense of being the observer, the witness. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. This is the Buddha's profound instruction to us. It's not a philosophical statement. It's an instruction. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. This is our practice, moment to moment. This is what we're practicing. And this is the practice of freedom. Let's sit for just a moment. These few moments simply sit, letting whatever arises in the moment, arise and pass away. Practicing non-clinging. It's non-doing. The breath, sensations, sounds, feelings. Moment after moment, things being known, the breath being known, sensation being known, happening all by itself. P.S. Eliot described this state so beautifully. He said, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well.